0: G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Um, friends, this morning before we pray and turn to Jonah 3, uh, we'll turn back to Jonah 3. Would you, uh, just come with, just stick with me in that Luke reading? Have you still got it there? Just turn back to Luke 24 if, um, and, uh, the sort of the end of Luke 24. So the end of Luke's gospel, his biography of the life of Jesus and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And there's just a couple of verses there, which I don't know. I wouldn't say they've stumped me, but I, they are a thing of curiosity to me and I wonder if they have been to you as well. Uh, so join me in Luke 24, uh, join me as the once dead, now risen Lord Jesus Christ sits down with his followers, get this, to do a Bible study with them. It'd knock the socks off my Bible study, wouldn't it? Or yours for that matter. Uh, anyway, have you got Luke 24 there? So in context, Jesus has, uh, we'll just pick it up from where he has uh, just had a Uh, He's proven that he's alive really by sharing a barbecued sort of fish meal or whatever it was uh, with his disciples and then Jesus speaks, verse 44, verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in, um, and then he basically says, the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high." So, friends, here's my question, here's the thing that stumped me or just at least been a thing of curiosity for most of my Christian life, which Scriptures is He talking about? Verses 46 and 47, where exactly is it written? Um, Have you ever wondered that? Because Jesus says three things are anticipated by the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, Verse 46, He told them this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer, And rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Which scriptures does he have in mind? Which passages in particular? Where exactly did he take them? Where was the where did he turn in his Bible study uh, with them? So very quickly, let's just see if we can at least sketch something together here. Firstly, the Messiah will suffer. Have you got a scripture for that? Where might you turn uh, in your Old Testament Bible? Uh, to see that the Messiah must suffer. Perhaps we turn to the Psalms. Actually, that would be quite a good place to turn, wouldn't it? The Psalms, you see there the Messiah, the King, uh, very often David or Solomon or whomever it is, the Anointed One in Israel, the Messiah, the King, he absolutely suffers through the book of Psalms, doesn't he? Uh, He feels forsaken by God at times, he wrestles with his enemies and feels beaten by them, he endures pain, he struggles even with death and sorrow and pain. Uh, where else could you turn? Isaiah perhaps? Uh, yes, Isaiah 40 and onwards. You've got the picture of the suffering servant, don't you? Uh, there in Isaiah's, uh, in the end of Isaiah. That's a good match. Crushed for it. our iniquities. Isaiah 52, 53. By his wounds we are healed. So there's, there's a pretty good place that you could go and all of the rest. So suffers firstly. What about the second one? So the Messiah will suffer and rise. Secondly, from the dead on the third day, says Jesus, that one's a bit trickier, isn't it? Uh, You could perhaps keep your hand in Isaiah 53 actually, because the one who was, uh, you know, by his wounds we are healed and he was assigned a grave with the wicked and all of that kind of thing, do you remember the verse? Yet he sees the light of life, the promised... Uh, servant that Isaiah looks forward to. Where else? Uh, the Psalms and Job give hints at an afterlife, at a life beyond the grave, uh, beyond the, the clasp of death. Uh, Ezekiel's valley of dry bones, you could go there, couldn't you? So, there's, there's a bunch of options. Uh, there, well, and Jonah, who spent three days and three nights in a watery grave of sorts, didn't he? So, you could. there's a few options. Uh, thirdly, Finally, Jesus said, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and here it comes, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Friends, this morning, Jonah chapter 3 contributes to a subtle but I think relentless strand of biblical teaching that God wants the whole world to hear of His mercy. God wants the nations to know of His merciful name and message. Uh, Jesus, in fact, there in Luke's Gospel, He said it was part of the Gospel itself, didn't He? I'm going to die, I'm going to rise on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins in my name is going to be preached to the nations. It's part of the Gospel, it's part of what the Old Testament has been anticipating. Don't you know what the Scriptures say? Haven't you been going to Bible study? Jesus is saying to them. So folks, as we turn to Jonah chapter 3 now, and uh, as we turn there in, in prayer uh, that God would um, uh, unlock it for us, really, through the, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we turn to Jonah chapter 3, Jonah 3 contributes to this theme. It's this, um, uh, this weird and wonderful story, Jonah chapter 3, it is a weird story, isn't it, of an entire enormous city finding the mercy of God for just a moment in time and I want us to wonder, was this one of the passages that Jesus opened up with his disciples on that day when he was risen with them and led them in a Bible study to show what was going to happen? Can't you see it, O my disciples? God has always wanted the nations to hear, are you going to carry the message to them? God wants our world to know, will they hear it from us? The risen Lord Jesus wants even the Ninevehs of our modern world called to repentance for the forgiveness of sins in His name. That's His will. Are we going to carry it? Does our willingness match His? There's a question. Will our world in our day experience and see for themselves the willingness of God to save in the willingness of his servants to speak? What a question. So the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Long introduction I know, let's pray and get into Jonah 3. Our Father God in heaven, uh, we read these ancient stories and these, um, these histories, these events that sound so spectacular And in a sense, so otherworldly and strange to us, an entire city encounters the Word of God en masse. But Father, would you please deliver us from the error of so disconnecting it from the real world that it doesn't even touch our lives, doesn't touch our hearts, just becomes an oddity of history, doesn't change our or affect our estimation of our God, the God that we meet in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, For all the difference and distance between us and Nineveh, for all the difference and the distance between us and Jonah, may we yet see the same merciful Lord at work, today as yesterday and on into forever. And Father, may that refresh our souls, as we are reminded of our own need for your mercy personally, your mercy, your grace, your patience with us, the restraint of your judgment on us. But God, please may your word fling us outward this morning as well, to a world not so different from Nineveh after all. And in Jesus' name, we ask for your Spirit's work in us today, please. Amen. So, the essential uh, ingredients to the nations encountering the saving work of God in Jonah 3, at least, the essential ingredients in Jonah 3 at least, are a personal transformation uh, of the messenger himself, a personal transformation, a compassionate confrontation uh, as God's Word comes to them and a repentance-driven renovation, a personal transformation, a compassionate confrontation and repentance-driven renovation. That's as it comes to us in Jonah 3 and I think there's a lot for us in our day to learn from just looking at those ingredients, that pattern. Let's take a look together. So Jonah 3 begins, have you got it, have you flicked back there in your Bibles? Jonah 3 begins with a personal transformation. Let's have a look, Jonah 3 verse 1, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, Now, just compare that, if you would, please, because it says it's the second time. And those of us who were here a few weeks ago, we remember the first time how that went, don't we? Almost identical words. Just, uh, just turn back a page, if it's a back a page or two in your Bible, Jonah chapter one. Can you see it there? Jonah chapter one, where we read, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, in other words, completely the opposite direction, the other end of the world. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port, after paying the fare he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. So today we see it finally happened, don't we? We see the personal transformation, we see Jonah from reluctance and running and sulky and skulking away to the ends of the earth, fleeing from the Lord, we see him turn back to the Lord. And last week, uh, do you remember there he was, can you picture the scene? He was in the whale or the fish or whatever it was, singing his heart out to the Lord. Why? Because he realised that the Lord loved him, the Lord loved him There was the personal transformation, there was the moment and now we see it's out working, do you see? So last week there he was singing because he realised the Lord loves him, the Lord listens, the Lord who reaches down to him, not only in the depths of the sea but in death, not only in the depths but in death and drew him out, such was this merciful God whom Jonah finally met and uncovered there at the bottom of the ocean through the saving work of God for him. There's the personal transformation. Have you seen that kind of thing before in people's lives? In your life, perhaps? Um, sad to say, I think very often the personal transformation we see is in, it's in the other direction, actually, isn't it? Which is perhaps a thing that weighs on our hearts very heavily uh, with certain people who are dear to us. We've seen someone who seemed to be going so well, they seem to be doing Jonah 3 kind of a stuff. You know, God seemed to have such a claim on their hearts and on their lives, Uh, walking so closely in his ways, heeding his call, following their Lord, and then a few years later, fleeing from their Lord. They're on a metaphorical ship to Tarshish, aren't they? And perhaps we never see them here again. How many times have we seen that kind of a personal transformation? Dozens of times? Maybe a hundred times. Uh, Jonah 3 begins with the other, the happy, uh, the wonderful, the glorious kind of personal transformation because we need to see this, I think, if Jonah, if the Jonah of chapter 1 had gone to Nineveh, friends, what good would he have been there? What good would he have been there if the Jonah of chapter 1, sulking and, and skulking and reluctant and running, had been plonked in Nineveh? He didn't know the Lord, he didn't love the Lord, the Lord didn't have his heart, he wasn't delighted at, at God whose ways are love and mercy and salvation. What good would Jonah have been if he had gone to Nineveh? Now, could, could you please, could we please together, just quietly ponder this thought for ourselves which Jonah are we more like at the moment? Are you, am I, fit to carry the mercy of God to the many who need it? Am I Jonah 1 or am I Jonah 3? The Word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Which kind of Jonah are you at the moment? am I fit to carry the mercy of God to the many who need it? By which, of course, I don't mean, but don't misunderstand me, I'm sure you know what I mean, I don't mean, are you good enough to represent a good God? No, don't be absurd, of course you're not good enough, I'm not good enough, you're not good enough, we know we're not good enough, that's the whole idea of mercy, isn't it? None of us is good enough, that's why we need mercy, not are we good enough, just are you saved by the mercy of God? has there been a personal transformation? Has the love of God for you in the death of Jesus gripped your heart, taken hold of your life, become a thing of joy to you, has it? That's where it needs to start this morning, that's the first ingredient, that's the essential ingredient, isn't it, in the the story of Jonah 3. It's only two verses there at the start but how important is it? Has it begun with you in those terms? Uh, well, because if it has, once it has, it can't possibly stay personal or private or secret or, uh, you know, just keep a lid on it kind of a thing. We can't keep it in, can we? Jonah chapter three, verse one. And this is the pattern that we see here in Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. There's no doubt is there, so I've called this point, uh, has it come up on the screen behind me? Yep, it has, brilliant. Uh, I've called this point compassionate confrontation. So, Jonah's personal transformation, I'm saying it leads to a compassionate confrontation. There's no doubt that it leads to a confrontation of thoughts, is there, here in the text of Jonah. Is it fair to call it compassionate, a compassionate confrontation? There's no doubt it was a confrontation of some sort, in fact if you cast your minds and your eyes back to uh, those verses that we just read a second ago in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1, it's certainly a confrontation that God intends there, isn't it? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go, this is Jonah chapter 1 verse 1, verse 2 now, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach what? Preach against it, why? Because its wickedness has come up before me. God's not mincing words there with the problem in Nineveh, this bloodthirsty, uh, brutish nation which ends up annihilating half of God's people. And so Jonah 3 verse 6 tells us, well, Jonah warned them. And Jonah 3, is it verse 4? You've got 40 days and that's it. It sounds ominous, doesn't it? Um, in fact, I think it's a marvel that they responded at all, isn't it? Jonah includes several extraordinary things, the fish is one of them but I really think that the transformation of the city of Nineveh is another one, sort of on a par with the, the whole fish experience, isn't it? It's extraordinary. Can you imagine Hobart, sleepy little Hobart, even responding at all if one of us got a word from the Lord, 40 more days and you'll be overthrown. Can you? I can't. I don't even think the Mercury would run the article, would they? No criticism of our dear local paper. 40 more days and you'll be overthrown. It's a wonder that they responded at all. But perhaps there were other factors. Have a listen to this. Historians have pointed out that about the time of Jonah's mission, Assyria, uh, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, you see, Assyria had experienced a series of famines, plagues, revolts and eclipses all of which were seen as omens of far worse things to come. Some have argued that this was God's way of preparing the ground for Jonah. This state of affairs would have made both rulers and subjects unusually attuned to the message of a visiting prophet. So there was some sociological explanation for this response. Even so, I think Jonah did a courageous thing, didn't he? to go to Nineveh, the capital, I'm not convinced that he even expected to get out of there alive, not with their reputation. But I also think that it was a compassionate confrontation and let me show you why, could I show you why? It's actually just in one verse and maybe I'm drawing too long a bow, I don't know but have a look with me, Jonah chapter 3 verse 4, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, maybe I'm drawing too long a bow here. Maybe I'm clutching at straws. But for a man who, remember, has been thrown over, chapter 1, verse 15, yes, a different Hebrew word, but the same kind of idea. For a man who who had felt the Lord hurl him into the depths, chapter 2 verse 3, yes, a different Hebrew word but such a similar concept, isn't it? I wonder if Jonah has chosen his words very carefully here, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown, do you see? I think Jonah preached a message of judgment that he felt rested on him. Do you see what I'm driving at? It's the difference between presenting God's judgment in condescension to you down there and delivering God's judgment in compassion because I'm down there with you, do you see? Jonah doesn't speak down to them on my read of it No, he's been at the bottom, he's only alive because he's been brought up from the bottom, up from the depths and up from death itself by the mercy of the Lord God, he was overthrown. Won't you listen to my warning now, can't you hear it? Now in our day, I think the church's message of judgment to the world around us, I think it's complicated, isn't it? by the fact that our reputation, at least in some quarters, is that we are, in the eyes of many, peddlers of fear and of guilt. Uh, we load people down with burdens and woes and the threat of hell and judgment, woes and burdens that we are unwilling to carry for ourselves. is that in part, in some quarters, our public reputation. I think it is. And perhaps it's earned when the church has spoken loudly and harshly in judgment on issues that either don't particularly affect us or we've swept them under the carpet in our own lives. And so it seems that we're talking about issues of judgment that just don't even touch us. We're not with them in, in the bottom, do you see? So the tone of our public conversation at times from some spokespersons in the past on, uh, you can take your pick really, on same-sex attraction or the sanctity of marriage or abortion or porn or domestic violence or other kinds of abuse, the tone comes across like, well, that's never happened in our club, but it's happening in yours. Our marriages are perfect, of course. Our sex lives are pure. Our childbearing is uncomplicated and effortless. Do you see now, I know I'm leaning a lot when it comes to this uh, text here in Jonah chapter three, verse four, on one word, but I don't know. I get the impression, uh, Was Jonah courageous? Yes. Did he confront them with judgment? Yes, he did. And we need to see that very clearly as well, because it was a message of judgment. He was challenging Nineveh on its wickedness. He was confronting them with the fearsome holiness of God. That's part of the message. I'm not saying shy away from that, don't say that, we must, the judgment of God is coming and it's real and it will sweep away all of the enemies of God. Courageous, yes, confrontation, yes, but with compassion and what a refreshing thing it is to hear a voice of compassion when your conscience is laden with guilt. Hasn't that been your experience? And in Jonah's case, what an extraordinary result. I mean, I can't promise you this kind of result in it. Of course, I can't. God did it this time. But what an extraordinary result. Um, Not that we should necessarily expect it every time, but we start to see, I think, here in in Nineveh, repentance drive actual renovation of lives or repair of lives in the fabric of Ninevite society. So have a look with me, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. What an extraordinary thing. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself in sackcloth and sat down in the dust Even their animals, by the way, just pause there for a second. Even their animals, are you serious? Like, that was a thing? Um, Who involves their animals? I mean, their cows and their sheep is what it's saying. In their repentance. Uh, Do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, there they are, taste anything, do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be... They were clothing their animals in sackcloth, verse 8. Now, it turns out, incidentally, that that tiny little detail marks the story with a certain stamp of authenticity, actually, because apparently at that time, in that culture, not in Jewish Israelite culture that we're much more accustomed with because it's what's draped over our entire Old Testament, but in the Syrian culture, yep, that's what they did. At that time, if the king was deadly serious, if he really meant it, heart and soul, if he feared the Lord... They're not just humans but animals, every subject in my kingdom. Because, verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The animals thing, that's the weirdest detail but it's probably not the most significant one. Look what's changed, verse 8. Look what repentance actually means for this bloodthirsty, violent, notorious, civilization in the, of the verse 8, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth, let everyone call urgently on God, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Uh, have a listen to, this is Tim Keller again on that uh, particular verse. Uh, by the way, I don't know that I've mentioned it, Tim Keller's written a very accessible and wonderful little book um, on Jonah, it's called The Prodigal Prophet. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a great read. Lots of short chapters. I'd encourage you to, to check it out if you'd like to uh, delve into Jonah a little bit more. Um, the Prodigal Prophet by Timothy Keller. Anyway, um, so uh, Keller wants us to see that when the nations really get God's mercy, it's good for them. Like, it is good for people when they take hold of the mercy of God. It changes their lives for good, Uh, So, uh, which is to say, evangelism is a good thing, sharing the gospel of Jesus. Do we still believe that? Uh, Tim Keller says, as we've seen, the Assyrian Empire was unusually violent. Actually, Jack, I feel like I'm, I hear that I'm ringing. Can you just turn the highest frequency just down a little bit? Yeah, I trust you, man. You'll figure it out. I'll stop mentioning it. Anyway, so, Tim Keller, are you with me? As we've seen, the Assyrian Empire was unusually violent. It slaughtered and enslaved countless people and oppressed the poor. It was renowned for its injustice, this was Ninevite society, renowned for its injustice, imperialism and oppression of other countries. Yet, Keller says, the text shows that the impulse toward exploitation and abuse was also wearing away at the fabric of Nineveh's society. It wasn't merely that the Assyrians, as a nation, were oppressing other nations that individuals were violent toward one another, poisoning social relationships. So, and what does the king say? Uh, he says, "Haven't we had enough?" Verse eight, "Let everyone call urgently on God. let them give up their evil ways and their violence." Brothers and sisters, I'm really glad that we support causes like IJM, the International Justice Mission. I think it's a good cause, and I think they're doing a kind of work with their working on the structures of society that very few other groups are doing. I'm glad that we support them. I'm glad that we support the Hobart City Mission uh, with an an offering through our year. I'm glad that we support, um, uh, what else, Uh, Operation Christmas Child. That's just coming up, actually, uh, very soon. Uh, The deed ministry in the Solomon Islands... Uh, World Transform and the, uh, the Deed Ministry in India there in partnership with Gospel. But can we remember this? When it's done right, Gospel proclamation is humanitarian work. It's the best humanitarian work, or it should be. I'm not saying don't do the others. As I said, I'm glad we support those. But Gospel work should be humanitarian work, shouldn't it? where lives are shattered by evil and violence or by the sins of our day, whatever they are, they're many, I want them to find Jesus, the victim and the perpetrator. I want them to find the mercy of God, I want them to hear the call of God on their lives, don't you? I want them to experience and find and know and walk in the repentance that repairs their little world. Hasn't that been the Gospel in your life? When you've actively lived out repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I do wonder sometimes if one of the reasons that we struggle a bit to do effective outreach in our own lives and in my own life is perhaps because we think mission is solely about the speaking or the being heard and not also about the repenting and experiencing the forgiveness of God in practical ways. See if mission is just about the speaking then all we need to do, friends, is just build a bigger sign, right? Post a few more sermons up onto uh, our podcast or write a letter to the newspaper and then our job's done, do you see? But if it's about repentance, if it's about the mercy of God working its way down into the lives of human beings, what did Jesus say? Make disciples of the nations, teaching them everything, teaching them to obey everything. It's not just a speaking and being heard thing but As I walk alongside someone in their life, speaking the gospel into their life, well, I have to build a relationship for that. I have to bear my own heart toward them. I have to share my own struggles. I have to confess my own failings along the way as well and model for them repentance as we walk along the road together. Bear one another's burdens, do you see? So am I sufficiently close friends with those people that I want to share the gospel with? Not just close enough that I get opportunities to speak at them. No, but close enough that they get a window on repentance in my life, close enough that I'm the one they turn to when uh, they need help with repentance in their own. What have we seen? What are the ingredients? A personal transformation, a compassionate confrontation, repentance leading to renovation or repair And finally, the Lord relents. there is a fourth ingredient, the Lord relents, but I suspect that one doesn't hasn't taken us by surprise at all chapter 3 verse 10. When the Lord saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, were you even surprised that he did this? He relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Let's conclude with this, brothers and sisters, the lavish mercy of our God to the ends of the earth has been writ large, not just in this moment in history, uh, in Nineveh, in Assyria, way out at the ends of the earth from God's people, the lavish mercy of our God to the ends of the earth has been writ large in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, has it not? Even to his persecutors, even to his executors, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Does our willingness to be known for His mercy match His willingness to extend mercy to the ends of the earth? Do you know His mercy for you? It's got to start there. Do we live His mercy for our world? This is what is written... The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. Let's pray together. Our Father God in heaven, we really are gobsmacked that you reach into the deep blue sea to save one sinner, that you reach into the grave to save humankind and you've reached into our little lives to save us. Father, too often we confess we think of your mercy as as a small thing. We don't really think about it, actually. Perhaps because we think of your judgment as a small thing, we don't really think about it, we don't have an urgency about us because, well, what more can be done? Lord, you have repeatedly shown that what you imagine to be possible outstrips our puny imagination. So would you give us courage? Would you give us compassion? Would you give us a closeness and affection for our world and our city, our people here in Hobart? But first, would you work repentance into our hearts? Awaken within us again, please, a keen sense that the God who delights to shower his mercy on people like us is great news for our souls and great news for our world. So awaken us with the love of Christ, please. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.